Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Waters Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Myers, and today I'm joined by Brandon Whitley from North Carolina, and we're talking about an interesting topic here that uh, I've never even thought was an even option until Brandon brought it up to me in a text message thread, which is talking about fly fishing for carp. Um, so, you know, most of us that live in the southeast, you know, if you go to anybody water, you're going to find carp, and uh, never thought about fly fishing for them, but uh, we're going to dive all in on that topic today with Brandon. So, Brandon, how are you doing? Man, I'm good. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely, dude. I'm excited. This is a this again interesting conversation. It's it's a topic I'd never heard of, never heard of anybody doing, it, and you brought it up to me, um, and I was like, dude, we've got to try it because I know you you love fly fishing. You travel all. I know you go to Colorado a decent amount and go out west and all over the country fly fishing. But uh, for carp, it's something super super interesting, um, just because of the size they can get, and and also if you're living in the southeast, you know they're fairly plentiful depending on the body of water you're on, um, and just that opportunity. So real quick, Brandon. Before we kind of get into the topic of just fly fishing for carp, I want to talk about your background. You know, born and raised in North Carolina, but what was your introduction into fly fishing, and how has that kind of you know gotten you to the point you're at now? Uh, and especially when it comes to like targeting carp, like especially in your home waters. Yeah, man. So I um, <clears throat> I was in the army, and a buddy of mine had some of his grandpa's fly rods, and I was a big bass fisherman, but I like to trout fish. And, uh, I said, you know what, maybe I'll give that a try. And he sold them to me. I gave him like 90 bucks. Um, he didn't know what he had and I didn't know what he had at the time, but it was like custom rods, hardy reels. It was like the best thing you could buy for $90. And, um, I hold on to those for a while. I don't really ever get into it. And then I moved back to North Carolina and, uh, kind of start to like set some roots again. And, a buddy of mine was like, Hey man, let's go trout fishing. Well, in North Carolina, probably 90% of the wild streams that are worth going to are fly only. So it's like you fly fish if you're going to trout fish in North Carolina with any sort of success. And, um, I'd started doing that. And then I put it down for a little bit and started guiding conventionally. And then just recently I've stopped fishing tournaments and stopped guiding. So the fly rods kind of like my only thing now. Awesome. Now, how did, so you said you kind of picked it back up when your buddy was like, hey, dude, let's go trout fishing. And you're saying, you know, 90% of those bodies of water where you can catch, you know, wild fish, you gotta have to use a fly. Um, now, after doing that for a little while, when did the carp come up? Because again, I'm just, I'm just trying to make the connection here because again, that's something I would never thought about. You know, I know, you know, I fly fish for bass and bluegill and the whole nine yards of them, but never would have thought about carp. So like, how did you get introduced to that? and uh and started you know at least at certain points of the season seem to target those species of carp yeah so like um there's a couple things going for it in my head it's like i went to uh key west last year year before last actually year before last and i did a bone fishing trip and the wind was blowing like 22 knots and i had 10 shots on very catchable bone fish and i just couldn't make the cast right and you know, my God was like, you just got to, you got to try to cast, like you got to learn how to double haul, like true fundamentally double haul. And I'm like, I just never had a reason to back home. And then I come back and I'm like looking for a way to create that situation, but not have to leave. And I started reading articles about like the freshwater bonefish, which is the carp. And, um, me and, me and a buddy like I met this guy about the same time that I was like starting to tie flies for it and I was like building having my buddy build me custom rods just to chase carp and I was starting to go down this like rabbit hole and I met this guy and he was like we started talking about fishing and he's like have you ever chased carp and then it was like we clicked and I bet we've been out a hundred times in the last two years chasing these things, but it lines up really well too. Cause like in the summer, I don't really like to fish our lakes for bass or stuff. Cause it's like the attrition rates really high. It's not really fun fishing, 
but then you can go chase this like dream sport fish. They're big, they fight hard, they're in everybody's backyard. And I mean, you can do it on a kayak if you wanted to. Now, see, this, so this is something that's interesting. You're saying it's dream sport fish, but most people, if they think about carp, I'd say probably 90% of people listening instantly go to bow fishing. That's probably the first thing that comes to their mind. They think carp, gar, the whole nine yards, uh, quote unquote, some people call it a trash fish. And they'd go bow fishing for it. They never would think about, you know, tying up a hook or rig or anything, trying to attempt to catch them, let alone fly fish for them. But what was like, do you have like any early, I guess, stories of going out and targeting them <clears throat> and, and like some of those very first early steps? Because the one thing I've learned about carp, especially like in smaller bodies of water, they're extremely spooky. They're, they're super skittish. Um, which I guess can translate really well when you're talking about fly fishing for, especially like you're talking about the bonefish and, and other like species that, you know, get hit really hard. They're pretty spooky. Mm-hmm. What was like some of those first experiences when you went to go out there and some of those early on learning uh, or those lessons learned early on that helped you become more successful when targeting, you know, carp specifically? Yeah, for sure. The probably the biggest takeaway from the first year is that, there are certain lakes that they're just going to be harder to catch them in. Um, so we, we learned very quickly. We found a body of water that has them really close to us, but not only has them, but has them in a catchable way. So the water generally stays clear and there's a bunch of big sand flats that you can like push your boat around and look for them. Um, so that was the biggest takeaway. Uh, the first encounter we ever had with a carp, we, we had probably been going out this for like four months, like without really an interaction with the carp. And we pull up into this flat that used to have an old restaurant in it. It's real nasty backwater stuff. And we see this carp just come up in the back and like kiss some grass. And I'm like pulling the boat as fast as I can. And Anderson's on the front and he drops a little dry fly just in there right on top of him he just comes up and just sucks it down and he sets the hook and misses him and it was like we've been going for four months and all we got was a little kiss you know and it's like it's just been rough so i think we're on it now though like i think we're figuring it out yeah so and that's what i was trying to get to is like it took y'all four months of going at it before you even had your first opportunity so one thing about we can and one thing i want to talk to you about this uh, when fly fishing for carp, I mean, is would you say majority of the time, if not every time, when you're trying to cast and you're fly fishing for carp, it's 100% sight fishing? Like you're trying to lay eyes on them, get the boat in position, and then cast? I mean, it's not one of those things that you're just going to cover a body of water and just see if one comes up and hits it. Yeah, I mean, I know people, some, some of the guys I talk to on Instagram about carp, cause there's like a really small community about, you know, what flies your time and all this stuff. Um, some of the guys that I talk to on Instagram, they catch them in like dirtier water where they're not seeing them. They're like seeing bubbles and seeing signs of them. And they're like kind of just, you know, fan casting to them and hoping for the best. Um, what we do is strictly sight fishing. So I've, I've never targeted them without seeing one. Interesting. Cool. Now, another thing you brought, which is kind of interesting, is you're talking about pulling your boat uh, up through those flats in order to kind of, you know, get those fish. Is it one of those things that 
polling is that much, and we're gonna I'm gonna talk, let you talk about like what is polling for you know people that maybe not understand what we're talking about here. Is it more effective to poll than use a trolling motor, or like what is your take in between the two of them? But and also while you're answering that, could you talk about just what is polling for people that don't understand that? Yeah, for sure. So polling, um, I'll send Jacob a picture of my boat, but there's a platform on the back of my boat and essentially I stand on it and I hold this long carbon fiber pole and I just push the boat. Um, it's a, it's an art form. Like it's very easy to like, when I first got into it, I was like, Oh yeah, I've seen how these guys do it. Like it's no big deal. And then you get up there and left, left, right and right's left and ups down and downs up. And it's just like, it's left brain, right brains, what it feels like. I mean, it's, um, but once you get the hang of it, you just have to be like slow and methodical and everything goes nice and easy. And, um, but yeah, it's just pushing a boat with a pole. Essentially a lot of guys do it off just a cooler on like a, a small genu. I have a duck boat that I put a pulling platform on. Um, it's just an express HD 16, but, um, no, so that's pulling for carp. I think it depends on the body of water, whether a trolling motor works or, uh, doesn't. Um, for us, like we go into a lot of these back bays where it's super shallow all the way back in there and the trolling motor just stirs up too much dirt. Um, I think I could probably get within casting distance of a fish with a trolling motor if I was gentle about it, but I do think pulling has a benefit for that, but don't, don't think you have to have a pulling platform or a pole to go catch a carp. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, you could just on the back of the boat, just throw a cooler there and kind of use that. Cause talk a little bit about like the like the reason for having that platform or getting elevated i mean is it both like an angle of pushing but also an angle of visibility where you can kind of see like kind of what's the advantage of having some kind of platform or a cooler or something you can get up above like the, the actual platform of the boat um in, in order to be able to again get a whether it's a good purchase or also just the visibility from up there yeah um i think the biggest reason is visibility um the difference between standing on the deck of the boat, the glare and the looking into the water is like, it's, it's a big difference. The higher you can get, the more you can see. Um, I also think it helps you get it over the motor. Uh, but I think technically it would be easier to push the boat if you were standing on the deck, right in the middle of the deck. Okay. But you would just, you know, so it's not like a mechanical advantage, but you don't really have any other option. Now, we've got to bring up this, and what we're talking about carp is, number one, where do you find <clears throat> carp? You know, you're talking about, you know, fishing in reservoirs, fishing in lakes and stuff like that. Typically, like, when you're looking at a body of water, like, what goes into scouting for carp? I mean, is that something that ever takes place? I mean, what kind of goes into your mindset of, like, what are you looking for, both maybe on aerial imagery, but also, like, when you get, you know, the boat on the water, what are you typically looking for to find carp? Yeah, so um, a lot of Google Earth. Google Earth will tell you a lot. Um, also, Navionics has a site called Navionics Web App. Um, I have their chips on my depth finders, but like I can actually scroll around on the computer and compare Google Earth and, and that and just see like what it looks like. Um, your initial instinct with a cart because of like the, I guess how we view carp is that they're going to live in this nasty backwater. It's going to be dirty water. It's like, but you never, not to say never, but you'll find carp there during the spawn. Cause they're like getting up in those bushes and stuff. But when they're feeding, they're like out on nice clean points and they're, they're on like nice hard bottom, like where you would expect bass to spawn. 
um, or stage to spawn. So that's what we always look for. You know, we look for stuff that has deep water close by, but is shallow. Um, something that has some different transitions of dirt and has clean water. And usually that combination of things, you find some fish. Interesting. Okay, very cool. Um, yeah, because you'd think, I mean, one thing I think that plays a huge part of this is being on a, a reservoir that has decent water clarity because like you said if like you're if you're in a place especially after it rained or just somebody's water just you know more notorious for having less visibility than other bodies of water and typically you know it seems like those reservoirs that aren't on like a massive river system um that has hard bottom doesn't have a ton of sediment it's always going to be clearer um and those kind of reservoirs i'm I'm guessing are going to be the ones that at least you have a lot better opportunity to be able to sight fish for them uh, where you have, you know, who knows? I mean, there's, there's reservoirs here in Alabama, like Lake Martin. If you're on the south side of Lake Martin, I mean, if it hasn't rained in two weeks and it's midday, not a cloud in the sky, I mean, on the south side of the lake, you could literally see in a lot of spots 10 to 12 feet down. Um, mm-hmm. Not saying you probably need that kind of visibility, but you're probably going to need three, two to three feet, four feet of visibility typically in order to kind of, you know, see what you're doing. Yeah. Um, you can see them in a foot if they're up, if they're up shallow, shallow. Um, the more visibility is obviously the better, but, uh, that also allows you to be seen a lot more for a spooky fish. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Um, but no, I mean, we've, we've had shots on them in muddier water than we should, should have been out there pulling around. Um, and then we've had shots on them in crystal clean water, you know? Awesome. Now we also, we've got to talk about kind of early in this episode. I do want to talk about, you know, when people think of carp, you th- you're thinking of, you know, eating grass, stuff like that. You're not necessarily, I mean, yeah, you'll see them come to the top of the water, but a lot of people don't think of like, oh, they're going to come up and, and take something off the top of the water. What is your knowledge of, of when it comes to carp and some of the carp species y'all have in North Carolina? Maybe you can talk about that, like what are the species y'all typically catch? But when it comes to like their feeding pattern, what is your knowledge on, on typically what they like to feed on? And how does like a fly, how does like, how do you tie flies in order to mimic kind of what they're feeding on, especially if it's on top of the water? And again, is it something you're using a dry fly, using a nymph? Kind of like, what does kind of that presentation typically look like? Yeah. So the, probably the most popular fly is called like a Joe Montana hybrid. Um, it has a little red tail, uh, and then it's a dub body and then it's got a little hackle feather at the front. And it's got dumbbell eyes, um, so it tends to stand more upright. Um, but it's supposed to imitate like a muscle um, that just any sort of old lake muscle or um, you know mollusk or clam or whatever. Um, but that's a really good one. We also have like worm flies and but mostly nymphs because like the fish that are happy and that we're trying to catch are like nose down, tail up fish. So you generally want to throw, I like to throw bugs that stand up on their own. So I use a lot of foam in the tails. Um, and it just, you know, stands up and they see it and they're very opportunistic. So they'll eat crawfish, they'll eat mussels, they'll eat grass. They, they really don't care. Um, but they're very big taste eaters. So you're at a disadvantage with a fly technically. Got you. So, but that's the, so your presentation, um, you know, talking about like using a nymph or something like that is putting it on the bottom, like you're casting it out there and you're almost, and maybe you can talk about this. Like if you, once you kind of get an eye on a fish, you know, how far out are you typically trying to lay that nymph down in order to 
let him come up upon it? And like, what what does that typically look like for that presentation for him? So, if you've ever seen a red fishing or a bone fishing video, um, there's something called the drag and drop. And casting and not spooking a fish is like the most important part of it, and that's the hardest part of it. It's it's like presenting the fly because generally speaking, if they see the fly and it's in the right way and it didn't scare them, they're going to eat it. It's not, there's no gamble there. It's all the other things that lead up to that fly getting in the right spot that really matter. And essentially you cast it in front of them and pass them and you drag it in front of them. Um, If you drop it right on their head, they're out of there. If you drop it behind them, they'll get spooked off the tail. Um, if you, you know, the line touches them because you cast it over them too far or whatever, like there's so many factors, but essentially you want a fish going from right to left or left to right. And you're going to cast further left and further closer to shore. Um, and then just drag it to where it's right in his lane. Got you. Perfect. Um, now, okay, cool. I, I want to talk some more about flies, but before we do, I want to talk about, uh, like your rigging setup in, in order to do this. So typically what, what size rods do y'all like to use? Um, talk about, again, sounds like you're using sinking line, but talk about some, like some of the, the, uh, the terminal side of everything of what you're using. Um, and also like what advice would you give somebody when it comes to like trying to build together a rig or if they already have a few fly rods, like best pick, what would potentially work the best for them? Um, if they weren't going to, you know, try and drop a ton of money on a brand new setup. For sure. So, um, my like go-to rod after doing this for a year is a six weight, um, just any old run of the mill six weight and a, a reel with some decent drag, but nothing doesn't have to be any, anything particularly special. Um, I would say that's the middle range. I, when I first started, I started with an eight weight cause that's what I had. Um, it worked just fine. I went to a six weight cause it delivers flies a little more delicately. Um, not because I think I need less power. Um, and then we've fished for them on a five and a four weight as well. Um, you just, it's kind of, you can do it in, in that whole range. I would say six is a sweet spot and then just a decent, decent reel with some good line on it. Um, and then we use, I build my own leaders. So I do, uh, a double arm length, of. 30 and then I do a single arm length of 20 and then I do a tippet section of 10 or 15 depending on how I'm feeling that day okay perfect awesome um very cool so so the interesting thing about this is it seems like it's fairly easy to get into like you're not needing any kind of special equipment in order to target these uh you know these species now in your area of the country what species are y'all typically catching carp wise so we have commons, we have buffaloes, and we have grass uh, carp. We don't have the Asian whatever. Um, and then we'll have some, like, beer carp every once in a while, but, like, it's not something we target. Okay, cool. Very – and do they – let me ask, do they act any different between those three species typically? Like, do you, have you noticed that one of those species is either more skittish than the other or they eat a little bit differently? Like, what, what are some of your takeaways on them? Yeah, so, like, um, we mainly fish for common carp. So like the typical yellow carp, um, and those act like I've described, right? Like they, they go up on points and flats and they kind of root around and eat. And, um, they're the ones that you typically sight fish for. 
Um, Buffalo, we don't see a lot, but they can do the same thing. Um, they just typically, ex- from what I understand, they typically exist more in current. Um, I've never caught one on the fly, so I can't really speak to it. Um, but the the grass carp, they stay up in the water column when they feed a little bit more. So generally you use more like moss balls and trees because they don't, they don't root like uh, grass carp does. Um, so it's more like trying to look like a vegetation. A mulberry fly is really common for them and it just kind of like slowly sinks. Um, and then they'll just swim by and grab it. Okay, very cool. Uh, now, after kind of talking on some of the equipment and everything, you're talking about the Joe Montana uh, kind of pattern, and, and there's some other patterns as well. Um, when you're going out and targeting carp, can walk us through a little bit of like a typical approach, a day, how you go about doing it. I mean, talk about again scouting, you know, you're looking for those flats, those points and everything, some shallow water up against, you know, some deeper uh, water as well. But when it comes to like the approach, like how are you taking wind in consideration? How are you taking boat position consideration to kind of ease your way up through these spots and kind of, you know, go to different spots that you want to kind of check out? Yeah. So basically there's, we haven't really found a rhyme or reason other than it's like you check a bunch of spots that look typical for what we have found carp on in the past, which is like I've described, it's either like a point or a back flat it's usually semi-clean. Um, and then we don't really play the wind that much. Um, if you have to cast into the wind, that's just kind of how it is. Uh, we try to keep the sun at our back um, just so we can see the fish better. And that's that's usually the only thing that kind of determines which direction we hole. Um, but a typical day we would wake up probably late because it's a very gentleman sport. The more sun you have, the better it is. Um, so, you know, 10 o'clock start and go get coffee and have a breakfast sandwich and then get to the lake and go find a flat to pull around and just hope for the best and keep doing that. Like, uh, you know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, um, with, and expecting a different result. Well, that is cart fishing because you just like, you know what the stuff's supposed to look like and you go and you just cover as much area as you can until you run into one. So it's very much, I guess you could say like very entry level when it comes to equipment, but like the more, the, the, the more difficult part is just finding and locating the fish. And is there any kind of rhyme or reason to it? As in like, if you ever find, if you find a fish in like one pocket or one flat, uh, is it one of those things that you can go back there and is there any kind of, um, I guess, continued success finding fish there, or is it very much kind of hit or miss and you're constantly just trying to find more and more ground to cover? No, it's, um, so they hang out in typical spots. Like now we have, I'll call it a milk run. Right. Um, so now we know like, we're going to start here. We're going to go here. We're going to go here. We're going to go here. Um, and there's spots that we have names for, and we can remember encounters with fish there and we've missed fish or we've hooked fish or whatever. And, um, yeah, so we have a milk run now and those spots also tend to be where you find largemouth bass bedded. So like I've learned a lot about a lot of these great spawning flats and stuff for bass because I've been out cart fishing in the summertime. But generally, if you find one in an area, you're going to find, like, more in that same area. 
Very cool. Now, also, are you are you very uh, opportunistic when y'all are out there? As in, like, if if you're trying to find carp and all of a sudden, oh yeah, okay, oh yeah. No, there's a so we have my three rod setup for lake fishing is like a woolly booger on like a five weight, a cart fly on a six weight, and then a gar fly on an eight weight. And like if I see a gar sunning. I've got these special gar flies that I tie <clears throat> and I can cast it to him and put it in front of his face. And they're very opportunistic. So if I put it in front of his face, he eats it. Um, and they fight like crazy. And then, uh, you know, if I see a bass, I'll cast to a bass or I'll just blind cast for bass. And, uh, then I have a little three way. I don't always take, but it's for bluegill. Uh, so, you know, drop fly bluegill summertime fun. Awesome. Oh, dude. See, that's, that's the fun thing about this is, like, you're going out there trying to find carp, but as you're coming upon other species, you know, having a few other rods rigged up so you don't have to retie anything, you've got, you know, different setups for different, you know, applications, be able to pick up the other rod and ready to roll. Uh, that's pretty fun. Now, real quick, I've got to ask about this gar fly. What is, what is, what is your uh, pattern on a gar fly, and how do you rig up your, like, your hook setup? I'm very interested in this. So I tie it on a hook, but it's not really um... – it, the hook's not needed per se, but you take like nylon rope and then you just kind of fray it up and then you build a essentially just like a shad body with it, like a longer tail shad body. And then you can just dub it however you wanted. Um, they don't have to be pretty. They can be ugly as sin. Uh, I tie ugly flaws. Um, but yeah, they can be ugly as sin and you can, they'll eat them. They don't care. They like red a lot. Um, but it just kind of sits in the water column and just kind of, it doesn't have a lot of action, but if you put it in front of their nose, they don't see very well. So you just have to get it close enough to them that they can react. And I'm, I'm guessing because of the frayed rope, their teeth and everything kind of get tangled up in that rope too. So it's not necessarily they have to get the hook. Yeah. Yeah. So generally you catch them on the rope and then when you get them to the boat, you just pop the rope out. It comes out super easy. Yeah. Interesting. So that we, uh, but you, you, you do lose a lot of fish. I'm sure. Well, I, I'll bring that up because where we fish, especially go up to, when we go up to Lake Gunnersville, there's so many spotted and long-nosed gar like in those grass flats and stuff, like mm-hmm. always. And I'm like, I've always wondered because I like, I've had them unintentionally. I wasn't trying to catch them, but smash a uh, a dry fly or like a little popper when we're trying to catch bluegill, and that typically doesn't work out very well for the uh, the fly or uh, popper you're using. <laughs> but uh, I've I've always thought about that because I'm like, dude, they're they're fun to catch because like you catch them bycatch a lot of times you know doing different things um but especially like you catch some like no i'm not i'm not worried about trying to hook into a big one dude but you know you get one that's like two and a half you want you want to hook you want to hook into a big one like a four footer oh my dude i can't imagine i can't imagine what that's like on a freaking fly rod i've never i've never landed one but i've got a few to like eat and it's just chaos for like the first five seconds and they just pop off yeah <laughs> oh, dude, that's awesome! And uh, but again, this is the cool thing about having this conversation is kind of showing you know listeners and anglers that there's other things to be able to go do out there during times of the season that it stuff gets slow. Like it, when it gets hot as hell in the middle of summer, and you know maybe you can get on some bluegill. And we're talking like reservoir fishing here. Um, you know, yeah, bass, yeah. bass are kind of kind of hit or miss depending on like you know especially if you don't want to fish deep for them. Uh, but to be able to go after like other species that are still readily available that offer a challenge, especially like the carp, the carp's kind of interesting again, especially on the reservoirs because you know, you have to hunt so much different ground in order to find them. I think it's kind of fascinating, but also on the flip side, it's like 
you know, I've got a, a river I was telling you about earlier uh, that's fairly close by that has a ton of carp, ton of carmic carp in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they'll get, especially when the water level gets a little lower in the summertime, uh, when we get, because we'll always have a couple week little drought. And uh, that river still be flowing, but there's a bunch of shoals and like kind of slack water in these pools, and you'll see them everywhere. I mean, absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, this would be such a cool uh, way to kind of expand into fishing some other parts of the season uh, in some you know water with a little bit of current. It's kind of still fun to fish, uh, but still be able you know catch a five six pound carp. Uh, where typically you know we may be catching you know red eye bass, that big one's 13 inches long. So yeah, yeah. Um, that just sounds like an absolute blast and something to kind of change it up and do something a little bit different on. Um, what's been some of your bigger takeaways from carp fishing? Like, has that has that fishing style been able to help you, especially like going back down in like Key West or like doing like other forms of fly fishing that you know after doing this for carp, it kind of applies to other areas of the country. Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing that carps kind of helps you with it it opens your mind because you have to be very creative on like tying flies. I have a box full of flies that, you know, I've taken inspiration from different fly tires, but you know, generally you're, you're scout, you're like scouring your hobby lobby with when your wife's looking for pictures for the house or whatever. And you're just like going through different yarns and you're trying to find all these like things that might work a little bit better for carp. Um, and it's fun. It's like, it's a challenge and you're, you're just you get to be creative and also go fish with this thing you created but like i guess the biggest takeaway from it is like you just gotta if you want to catch a carp you just gotta want it bad enough like you can want anything into existence like if you get off your butt and do it you know yeah um but it's been tough Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and success call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com. Use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better 
pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from TrueLock. It's a great option. It's the same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give TrueLock a shot this spring, you can head over to TrueLockChokes.com. That's T-R-U L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. The one thing I, I think that would be interesting is, um, you know, guys that do want to go redfish, especially if they don't live in a part of the country where, like, I could be down in southern Louisiana in, like, four hours uh, or be mm-hmm. down in certain parts of uh, Florida as well in, like, four hours or less. And if someone doesn't live super close to the coast to be able to kind of do that and, and go chase, chase uh, redfish, uh, I know it's it's a little bit different, but, again, to be able to try to – No, it's it's perfect practice. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, like, it'd be great practice to understand, especially if you're taking your own boat. Because I know a lot of guys – like, I've got buddies that live in Mississippi – that use their duck boat and go down and fly fish for, for redfish down in southern Louisiana. Um, and just as, like, a way to practice, like, boat positioning, um, you know, polling, but also, like, working with a team, like, working – because you can't do it by mm-hmm. yourself. you got to have somebody else there with you. Uh, but working together with a buddy where you kind of get in, like, a flow of things and understand, mm-hmm. like, how to position boat, how to how to work on your cast, to hold on yards, to me would be, like you said, excellent practice before you go down there and try to ch- chase redfish. Yeah, no, me and Anderson, when we first started this, we looked, we looked silly, um, to say the least. But uh, now it's, it's a well-old machine, at least. Uh, you know, if, I, if I'm pulling the boat or he's pulling the boat and he tells me where a fish is by time, I don't even have to think about it anymore. I know that fish is here. Um, if I need more information, you know, he's, he's in those yardages and, like, all this stuff. And it's like we can push the boat around and be very efficient. We you know, we're on the same wavelength if we feel like we need to make a change. So it's, it's good, but we didn't get there overnight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. But again, just as a, a way to practice and, and, uh, and be able to stay in the game. Cause I mean, it's just like hunting. Uh, and really that's what you're doing. You're, you're hunting for these fish. You're trying to find them and trying to locate them, target them and, and you know, place your fly in a way that's going to give you the best opportunity. But before you go spend all that kind of money, travel into a different state and, you know, go after redfish or bonefish or something like that, to be able to go out and practice and get good at, again, the boat positioning, working with your buddy, especially as a buddy you're going to go on a trip like that with, before you go down there and spend all this money traveling, get your license and all that kind of stuff taken care of and spend all the money on gas and, and, and housing and all that. Get well-oiled before you go. It just seems yeah, like it, it, for it, sure. it makes up for a lot less headaches when you actually get there. You can truly focus on finding and catching those fish instead of working out all the kinks between you and your buddy on the boat, which, you know, it's never fun. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you I wish I would have uh, started carp fishing before my first bonefish trip because I I don't know for sure, but speculation is that I could have at least made one of those casts you know, the 10 casts that I've failed at making, mm-hmm. I feel like I would be more capable of doing that now. And do you think that's because of being on open water with uh, a lot more wind or opportunity for higher winds on open water? It would kind of help you in that, in that case. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, building line speed is everything with a fly. Um, and there are, the only way you do that is with technique. Like you can pull as hard as you want and you can force it as hard as you want, but like, learning the art of like how to like you know actually generate speed with a fly line um 
it doesn't come from muscling it. I can tell you that. And it took me a, about a year to learn it to finally feel like I'm making better cast. Um, but yeah, that's the biggest thing. It's just a good opportunity to get more accurate and be a better double hauler. So let me ask you this, uh, since after doing, uh, you know, doing the style fish and talking about carp here, um, have you guys again, taken what you've learned and like, have y'all done any kind of redfish? I mean, have, have you taken, did you take your boat anywhere? Um, I haven't. Anderson's been a couple of times and I think it's helped him a little bit. Um, he's still struggling down there on the coast to find his own little like set of, you know, places to go pull around. Um, but no, he's, he seems to be learning a lot faster than he would have maybe if he had never, never pulled before getting down there and like never, you know, called a fish to somebody if they were on the front of the boat. Um, so I definitely think it's helped him. Uh, but I do know he's struggling a little bit to find the fish. <laughs> That's the biggest thing. You got to find him. It's one thing to know how to catch him. It's another thing about you got to find him first. Um, yeah, dude, that, that's so fascinating. And again, that's something that, you know, we just got a, we just got a boat, um, that we're talking about trying to go do some inshore fishing trips with, but also doing more stuff up here and use it for hunting and fishing. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that would be an interesting way. Cause we're talking about trying to do a, a redfish trip, uh, with our buddies down in Louisiana, uh, and speckle trout, and I'm like, and talking about taking the fly rods, but I'm like, we probably ought to practice a lot more up here on the boat mm-hmm. and, and doing like what we're talking about doing here. Um, so when we get down there, we're not, you know, we're not getting me and Andrew aren't getting upset with each other about you know boat positioning and what to do or how to handle different fish and, and practice up here before we go down. Uh, just so when we get there, it's a lot more natural in that presentation, and, and we are kind of again, you're in the groove of things. You're not trying to relearn something while you're down there, other than just where to find the fish at. Yeah, no, once you, uh, that's what I, I used to fish bass tournaments a lot. And the time in my life when I was the best fisherman, I worked at a tackle shop and I fished four days a week. Um, so the more that you can do it, the better you are. Uh, like I could go try to catch catfish. And because I was on the lake bass fishing four days a week, I was just, I made better decisions and I knew more about where the bait was and where the fish are and like all that stuff. Um, so I think time on if you put time into it, you can definitely get better, and it definitely helps. Absolutely. By the way, talk to me a little bit, especially being a uh, you know how you used to be a hardcore bass angler and fisherman, and did tournaments all nine yards. How has fly fishing maybe taken like a step forward in your life as like a passion of yours, or something that you try to like focus more on compared to like again maybe growing up in, in bass fishing super hard? Yeah. So um, I tournament fished at 15 years old with this guy that. His dad builds baits, um, Brian B's. They build custom crankbaits right here in town. And we met up in gym class or something at the high school, and he was 16 and I was 15. And he was like, hey, man, like I fish these tournaments. My dad like helped me get a boat. And it was a little 17-foot Stratus that they had redone together, and it was like super cool for him to have a boat. And we ran around all these local tournaments and fished in the dead of winter, like 20 degrees. We wanted it like the – it's the dumbest thing you've ever seen. Like I, I would never do that now. Cause I've like turned into a weather wimp, but, um, no. So like that started my fishing, like kind of passion. Uh, I fished all growing up, but like that started like me really learning how to fish. And then I did that for a while, even when I was in the army, um, and got out and I just got fed up. Cause there's like always somebody's griping at a tournament. Um, somebody's BSing on Facebook, somebody's cheating. Like it's just, and it wasn't, 
it wasn't as fun as it was when I got into it, right? It became more of a job, um, and I was dealing with a headache of people. So I was like, I don't know. And then we trout fish, and it was just, like, fun because it's, like, an adventure. Like, I can take this fly rod, and I can go anywhere in the world, and there's some sort of cool fish, even if most people look at it as a trash fish, right? I can go in Belmont, North Carolina, and I can go down to Lake Wiley, and I can try to catch a carp with a fly rod. And I'm going to be in the – I've learned so much about the lake. Like, we took one creek – we took it like 19 miles off the lake, off the main lake. Like it was ridiculous. We, we went under trees, like cut down trees trying to find carp. And it's like, it's an adventure. Like anytime that I grab a fly rod, I get to be, I get to go on an adventure. Like I just went to Colorado. It was runoff season. It was muddy. Every fish that we hooked into broke us off. Um, giant fish too. I netted a 32 incher for a guy wow yeah i'll send you the picture of it later but um no the biggest trout i've ever seen in my life and it's just like we had a blast we didn't catch a single fish we didn't put a single fish in the net but every fish we hooked into was just like dogged us you know and it's it took us there and like i've been to the keys and i've fished in korea when i was stationed over there and like i've fished in california and um no it's just like that is why I think the fly rod appeals to me now is because I love to travel. Um, and I travel a lot for hunting and fishing and it's just like, why not find something like I could go to Pacific Northwest next year and chase steelhead on a two handed rod, which would be a new experience or I could go to Mexico and chase tuna, you know? And it's like, that to me is the cool thing about it. Yeah. And one thing that's, I guess, overlooked about, uh, traveling with a fly rod is how easy it is um i mean typically because you bring a couple extra reels you know with different fly lines on there uh bring one rod and a rod tube and just have you know your your small box of flies and everything and it's like you have everything you need right there and it's like you don't have to have all those extra stuff that you would see on like on a typical bass boat or anything like that so to me it makes it super easy to travel with especially if you're going on like a little work trip it's so easy to throw a fly rod in your truck you know have it broke down couple reels you know some flies and, and roll out um which is really fun i mean i think i told you back in uh august of last year went to idaho uh for a work trip and while we were out there got with one of the guys uh, for one of the companies we were working with and uh went out to one of his favorite little uh, holes to go fish on uh, one of the rivers out there and first time ever fishing for wild trout uh, and used all of his gear he's like we'll go to a local fly shop go rent you some uh, some uh, wading boots because i didn't have anything with me mm-hmm. and he's like dude we'll go out there and get after it and dude like, we never the biggest the biggest trout i hooked into was probably a 16 to 18 inch uh rainbow but all the trout we were catching is between nine inches and probably 14 inches but i landed 22 and probably hooked into and slash miss over 40 in like a two mile walk Mm -hmm. down the river and i'm like this is an absolute blast dude um and it's like again you know before i had like and i've only been messing around with a fly rod now for uh, a year and a half maybe uh definitely not great like again i catch bluegill and bass Mm -hmm. and stuff but definitely not great but it's like it's so fun that opportunity of work can kind of take you um and different species to go after and the, the versatility of it i mean you're talking about going from catching carp to catching redfish to 
largemouths, uh, you know, uh, bluegill, the whole nine yards. There's so many different things you can do with it. And, and that's why I am a, a huge proponent. If, like, someone's interested in the fly fishing, there's some awesome resources online uh, in order to kind of learn more how to do it and find local, like, a, someone that can be, a, like, a local mentor to you. Um, and, and then just start with bluegill. Like, start super simple. Like, everybody can find bluegill in their local, you know, reservoir, their so, local lake or pond, um, and start there and then kind of expand your way out. Because, dude, especially on a dry fly, if a freak, when a bluegill comes up and smashes that thing on a bed, dude, it is so much fun. <laughs> there is there is no more aggressive bluegill bite. Like, that is, like, they come out of the water and they'll eat it on the way back into the water. It's just insane. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, um, that I, I've got a couple buddies of mine. That's what they love to do in May, uh, which is, it's mm-hmm. May now when we're recording this episode, come out in June, but it's like, dude, it is so much fun on a fly rod. And again, it's just like, it's just a cool experience to be able to kind of change it up from what most people are typically used to fishing uh, and just the opportunities that are out there. And, like, again, you're in North Carolina, so, I mean, when it comes to trout fishing in the southeast, you know, great opportunities, especially on the western side of the state. You know, eastern Tennessee is the same way. Um, but it is it is really, really interesting. Someone's willing to go out there, buy, buy a rod, and, and also realize you don't have to spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on a setup. Um I mean, just to be 100% honest, my first fly rod, my, my, my granddad gave me one, and it's somewhere. It's not a it's not a nice rod. It's an old fiberglass Shakespeare rod and some uh, composite reel. But um, bought I just bought an Amazon little combo, dude, for like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was like a f- four-weight for like 80 bucks, and went out and caught the crab out some bluegill. Broke the rod, of course. Uh, but, again, I wasn't out a whole bunch. It's like you don't have to have, you know, yeah. four or $500 rod or a $1,000 rod and, you know, seven, $800 reel um, just to get your feet wet. And then after you learn a little bit about the equipment, maybe go take some lessons, learn, you know, and maybe try to target some other species. Like, okay, yeah, I like this. I can, you know, sink some more money into it. But you don't have to start out with, a, you know, super high-end rod reel combo uh, kind of setup uh, in order to get into fly no, I, fishing. I started with an eBay rod, man. I found out. I was like on eBay looking for like a four piece, four or five weight um, for my first trout setup. And I found it at Reddington. And I think it was actually in Europe because it like it took forever to get to me. And I paid like 80 bucks for the rod. And then uh, I went to a fly shop and they sent me up with a, a reel for, you know, 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever. And it was like that was my first setup. Um, my buddy Tyler, he also has he has that set up now. Like I hammered it down to him. Yeah. But oh. yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't take much. No. And, and one thing you were talking about earlier on, you kind of mentioned about like fly fishing, like out of a kayak too. And, and that's a conversation just by itself of like, yeah, I've never tried it. Um, but I mean, I know guys that do do it. And it's like, if you're, if you're capable of, uh, you know, getting up in your kayak and be able to fly fish from it. It's like, again, like you don't even have to have like a nice boat. You don't have to have a big boat. Yeah. Like you could do it with mm-hmm. just a simple kayak or even bank fish. I mean, it's hard to listen. There's a reason why people wade when they, uh, fly fish <laughs> because, uh, fishing from the bank is extremely tough and difficult, especially, uh, I mean, just unless it's a pristine, like you're in a city park and there's not a tree or a blade of grass over a couple inches tall behind you. 
uh, it's extremely difficult. But uh, I mean, just even wade fishing, uh, like you find a you know a, a flat that's got bluegill spawning on it's you know two feet deep, three feet deep. You could wade fish out there and, and you know fish mm-hmm. with your fly rod. Again, you don't even have to have a uh, a big rig or anything. So um, it's super super easy for someone to get into it and and open the doors. But again, like we've been talking about, about this whole conversation, talking about carp is like seems like carp is a great species to target if you're interested in getting into especially like redfish or even do a bonefish mm-hmm. trip just to learn especially if you have a boat learn how to sight fish learn how to you know use boat positioning polling understand how to work with your partner on your boat um from both you know being the back boat polling versus also being the angler um to set your you know your buddy each of you up uh, for the right position in order to be able to make that cast uh but before you do one of those trips it seems like this is a an excellent way to uh, get, have baptism by fire and uh, and mm-hmm. kind of fail your way through until you start having success before you go do that trip and spend you know a lot more money doing something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Brandon, I appreciate you joining me. I think we'll wrap up here. It's been a, a fun conversation. Definitely something else on the list. I'm going to talk to Andrew about maybe us trying to go out there on the local <laughs> lake and, uh, and attempt to go find some uh, some carp. If not, I know some city ponds that have them. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, we fish some ponds too. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And just, I mean, just try it out a little bit. Definitely, I'm going to go down to that river too and uh, and wade fish for them, just because I I know some pockets that always have them, and uh, and just get some experience doing it, and then you know. Try to implement the boat because again like you said you know if we're trying to do a, a redfish trip down to louisiana this is like a perfect way just to get in the feel of things on the boat understand how we're going to set the boat up what works what doesn't work before we get down there yeah. and uh, and have to fill it out in the uh on the water but dude i greatly appreciate you joining me i know listeners yeah, well, the time the episode comes out, y'all can go over to Facebook and Instagram and kind of see some of the photos and see some of the stuff we're talking about. And also, uh, Brandon, I'll have you uh, send me some photos of the patterns that you're tying as well. Yep, yep. Uh, just so listeners can kind of get an idea along with we got you got to show me the gar the gar fly because I want listeners okay. to kind of get an idea of what that looks like too uh, for another opportunity uh, for fishing. But, uh, dude, I appreciate you joining me. And, um, again, I'll, I'll say this real quick at the very end. Is there anything else you want to mention, any kind of last pieces of advice or tips for listeners that maybe want to try to go out there and go after carp? Yeah, I mean, if you uh, if you want to catch a carp, you got to go do it, and you got to be okay with the learning curve. I think everybody's kind of – like a lot of people are looking for that, like, easy thing don't get into it and expect you to go catch a cart first day like expect it to be a grind expect it to be hard and but no it is worth it like when you hook into one and it rips you to your backing and you're you're in your backyard you're 40 45 minutes or less away from your house and this thing is just taking you for for all your lunch money like it it's definitely worth it um but it's not easy let me let me ask you this one last question. What is what is the biggest carp y'all were able put, y'all were able to put in the boat um, while targeting carp? Uh, the biggest I've ever caught wild is a thirty. Okay, awesome. But they get they get like um, my local lake had the world <clears throat> had the world record for uh, smallmouth buffalo for like. 25 years this guy named tony uh caught like an 80 something pound buffalo i can't imagine what that would be like on a fly rod god bless you probably snapped that sucker in half if you didn't know what you were doing yeah, chased he, around the boat he, he he caught it conventionally but um no they're there yeah like they, we've got <laughs> we've got them that's awesome 
That's awesome. Well, again, listeners, you know, if you decide to go out there and implement some of this and, uh, and maybe go try catch some, uh, I almost said trout, catch some carp, uh, let us know. I want to hear from you guys in the messages uh, on social media. Let us know. I'd love to see some listener success stories if you go out there and implement uh, some things that Brandon has been talking about. But, Brandon, appreciate you joining me for this week's episode, brother. Thanks again. And, listeners, we'll have to catch you all back on the next episode from the Southern Waters Fishing Podcast. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about uh, which saddle should i get which tree stand should i get what about this piece of gear what about that piece of gear How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.